Well, good afternoon, and I uh, want to welcome you all to the Cato Institute and the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Uh, my name is Michael Tanner. For those uh, of you who don't know me, I'm a senior fellow here who works on social welfare issues. And I want to invite, uh, welcome you today to uh, what I think is going to be a terrific event. Uh, James Bartholomew, uh, who is the author here of The Wealth, uh, Welfare of Nations, uh, this is actually the second time we've done a book event for him. Uh, he was here uh, several years ago for a book called The Welfare State We're In. And that, uh, that was very widely, uh, widely heard and seen and well-received. Uh, got a lot of attention for that, uh, I think, both here and abroad. Uh, and this new book, I think, is uh, perhaps even more important. It certainly was a monumental undertaking. Uh, I know it was monumental because about every three months I would get an email saying, I've covered all of this ground. And it was, uh, it was I said, gee, I haven't covered that much ground in about five years uh, of research. So, so you obviously are covering a great deal. So we're thrilled to, to have him here and to talk about this new book. Uh, James is a journalist, uh, and uh, he is also a fellow with the Institute for Economic Affairs and the Adam Smith Institute in, uh, in the UK, uh, which I understand is now very popular these days. Your, your prime minister is actually here in this country now, uh, uh, so, uh, so maybe this is part of a trend that, that's ongoing here, uh, that we're working together with that. And then after that, we will have some, uh, some commentary on this book. Uh, but, but first, uh, I'm going to let James uh, tell you about it himself. So uh, I'm not going to stand any more in the way here, but, uh, but James Bartholomew. Hi. Um, I uh, have to, first of all, thank the Cato Institute, because uh, normally it's very boring to thank people. But I, you know, you, you can, you've got to imagine the honor that somebody feels to be published in another country and by an august organization. It is, uh, for, a, for a mere journalist, uh, it is a great honor. And you talk about me covering a lot. I mean, yes, it is, it is really a question of fools rush in where angels and academics fear to tread, because most uh, serious academics would not dare try to write a book about the entire world of welfare states in every aspect, because it is just an enormous area. But uh, a, a journalist is crazy enough to try to do that. Um, the... I came to Washington for, uh, for part of the research. I visited 11 countries in my research, and Washington is one of the places I touched down in. And I went to visit a, a woman who is in government offices near the Senate. Uh, a, I was wanting to talk about care for the elderly, which is a subject which I did not avoid, which most people avoid because it's so difficult. And um, uh, I went to see her. She's an intelligent, sophisticated, kind woman, you know, just the sort of person you'd want at the center of government. And uh, after I left her offices, I went out and saw the, uh, the Senate and, you know, in its neoclassical magnificence. And then I thought of, walk, of taking a taxi back to my hotel, but um, I thought I'd just stretch my legs and walk a little bit. And so I, I walked along, you know, in, down a back street near the Senate. And as I walked along, I came across some people just hanging around at the side of the road. Most of them were black. They were, one or two, some of them were standing, some of them were sitting on a low wall. They weren't in big groups of happily talking together. They looked sad, dejected. And the journalist in me would, wanted to do the obvious thing, you know, so, so go up to them, say, what are you doing here? What's going on? Uh, maybe take some photographs. 
But because this happened to me unexpectedly, I thought it just seemed just so sad. And I was, um, it was a kind of Damascus moment where I thought, this is serious. These people's lives, I don't know what's going on in their lives, but they've been seriously damaged. They were outside a place called the John Earl Young Center for the Homeless. And I, I don't know what they were queuing for. I was, I was not, I didn't interview any of them. It was just a moment when it forced me to reflect that people like us, people who are in the policy area, in politics or in think tanks, the responsibility we have is immense. We are affecting people's, real people's lives and sometimes spoiling them. And we shouldn't hang on to pride or exotic theories just because they sound good. If we find a fact that doesn't correspond with, uh, with our theories, we should change them. Uh, the lives of these people is more important than our pride. Uh, so it's, it should be approached this subject with, with the utmost seriousness. Um, state welfare, some people think state welfare is new, but it's certainly not. Um, I found records of it in ancient Greece, and it's quite well known uh, that it existed to a large extent in ancient Rome. And in fact, you can go to Rome now, you can go and visit um, the Trajan's Market, which is where... Uh, the Emperor Trajan uh, put up a magnificent building that was considered one of the wonders of the world for the purpose of administering free, free corn to the population. It was a huge enterprise. So it dates back a long time. But the difference in modern civilization is that it has become all-encompassing. Our lives from the moment born in a government hospital uh, and then through compulsory government primary schooling, compulsory uh, next stage of schooling, secondary schooling, all this, uh, the benefits you may get for getting a, uh, a subsidized uh, apartment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it frames the lives, especially of the poor. In fact, for the elite, and I guess most people here are part of the elite, we are not touched as much by this state apparatus as poor people. And we've, it's an effort of the imagination to think what it's like for them. Uh, and around the world, I contend that the welfare states of the world have done a, a considerable amount of harm. Of course, they've aimed to do good, but they have done uh, a considerable amount of harm. And it was, each, each country I visited thought it was unique. And of course, the, each one is different. Um, but it was like Groundhog Day. You wake up in, in Paris and you find you're in a, in a country with mass unemployment. Another place, you find the healthcare is either ruinously expensive or else rationed and people die. You find that single parenting has increased universally. There are a few small exceptions, but even they are beginning to rise. You find what you call projects that have gone wrong, that have literally been blown up. That's not unique to the States. It's happened in Britain and in France, just to begin with. You find pensions that are unfunded and there are huge debt implied in them. You find the national debt has risen and risen, that welfare as a proportion of spending of governments has risen. You find low growth, you find high taxes, you find crime and incivility, and you find growing dishonesty and black economies. So, I mean, I see a lot of things that have gone wrong, and um, I think we should regard this event, this creation of welfare states, as one of the major events in world history. 
to be likened to the change from a feudal society through the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution, through the communist revolutions, we've now got the welfare state revolution. And we should be aware that this is a worldwide phenomenon, that the nature of world civilization has just been changing, is changing, and is affecting the happiness and well-being of millions of people in the advanced world, and often not for the good, often for the bad. How did this happen? It starts, I think, with democracy. In Rome, it started with democracy because a guy who created the, the corn dole was called Clodius, and he wanted to get elected, and he said, instead of having just subsidized corn for the poor, let's make it free. It starts with democracy, because it creates an inherent pressure, democracy, to, to please the people and give them things. <laughs> so then it goes on from that to uh, uh, politicians coming out with idealism and grand ambitions and people wanting to believe that they can actually do it. So we have phrases like the great society, land fit for heroes. And this, the idealism part of it is good. There's nothing wrong with idealism. Uh, I guess everybody who works in Cato and everyone who works in policy is actually has an ideal to make the world a better place than it was before. So idealism is fine, but it, it's, um, there are unintended consequences and idealism can go badly, badly wrong. Um, the French think that we British and Americans are very poor in our attitude to the poor. They think that uh, we have a niggardly, stingy, grudging attitude to welfare, that we only give to people who are in big trouble and then reluctantly. They have an idea of what they call solidarity, whole people united. They have a, a social insurance system which um, covers uh, health care and unemployment and all lots of things that more than I think the Americans mean by the phrase social insurance. So it's, it's a global system, everybody's included, it's a kind of big team, and um, the, even though there are big disparities between the rich and poor in France, they think of themselves as having solidarity. So it's a national myth, if you like, a national ideal. And I, um, when, I was, when I visited France, which I did a couple of times, I went down to Marseille. Marseille, I'm sure you know, is a, a big city on the, on the south coast of France. And it was, um, I, I had a, uh, a contact or a friend whose brother was a taxi driver who's, who'd had another, knew another taxi driver. And I asked this taxi driver to take me around the projects, as you would call them, in Marseille, five, to visit five projects. In, in Britain, we call it social, uh, social housing. And in France, they call them HLM, Habitation uh, à Loyer Modéré, um, moderate rents for uh, habitations. So uh, he took me to the first one. And uh, I, I, he, he wanted me to drive in my hard car. He said he didn't want to take his taxi because he didn't want it to be burnt. Um, so we went in my hard car and uh, we parked. And, uh, and then I was intending to get out. But he was obviously reluctant to get out. But I thought, I'm going to get out anyway. It looks all right. So I got out and started walking along. And he reluctantly followed behind me. And I was saying, yeah, well, it's... Um, it's, these people are obviously not that poor because they are, um, they, there are quite a few cars parked here. And he said, keep your voice down. I said, why? He said, because they'll be listening to us. Who will be listening to us? The gang that controls this project. Um, 
he more or less dragged me back to the car. We got in the car and started to drive out. Now, there were only two roads going in and out of this uh, project, uh, which makes it like a fortress, because that's what you do with a fortress. You only have limited entrances. And as we passed the bus stop, he pointed out a, a guy and said, you see the guy in the hoodie? Yeah. He's the shoof. What's a shoof? Shoof is the lookout for the gang. He will telephone when uh, police arrive or when, um, when somebody comes wanting to buy drugs. He gets well paid. You know, he gets, he, he knew, the taxi driver knew the rates of pay for a shoof and said, you know, after a while he'll be able to afford branded goods. He'll have a Rolex and, and new, new trainers. You know, it's, it, that seemed to be the, 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 where the status lay. So then we went on to another place and we just drove through it. We didn't stop. We didn't want any more stopping. Uh, and along the ground level, all the apartments in this HLM, every single one, was boarded up and covered over with metal, the windows. There was no light going into those apartments. They were they're built for defense. And even on the, on the next floor up, there were, there were apartments with, with boarded up. And then we saw a woman pass by with her, with her child in a buggy. And I said, what is life like in a place like this for a woman? And he said, well, any time she might find her apartment busted into by the gang, and she'll be told she has to store their drugs or their guns. And of course, she don't, doesn't dare object, let alone tell the police, because that would be suicide. People have actually been reluctant to leave prison in Marseille in case they get shot as they come out. Um, and so we, I, I visited these projects. One of them, he said, no, we're not going in. We're not going in at all, because if we go in, we'll be, we may be stopped in, with the road in front of us, and stop the road behind, there's no escape, and the gang will have us. So we didn't even go into that one. But going back to the first one, that was on a hill high up, overlooking Marseille, long way from anywhere, um, kind of bleak. You know, no, not much, nothing had been looked after around it. It was like sort of in wasteland on a hill, miles away, isolated, alienated, drug gang controlled. And I asked him as we left this place, what was the, what's the name of, of this project? And he said, solidarity. And that is, that really brought home to me the difference between the idealism and the actuality. What can we do about it? That's another part of the book. Part of the book is describing this, this change and, and comparing different countries. But part of the book is to ask, what can we do about it? Because my previous book was about how welfare states in Britain has caused a lot of harm. I wanted to try and be a bit more positive and think of you know, what, what we can do. Well, the first thing is, I do not think we can get rid of it. I don't think it's democratically possible. I, you know, I don't think the democracy will stand for it. I mean, I would love, uh, that would be my perfect answer, get rid of most of it. But I don't think it's going to happen. So that means the next question is, how can we make the best of it? How can we make the best possible welfare state that a democracy might just accept and might just work not too badly? I know it sounds a really modest ambition, but actually it's a great ambition because it would... It gives a poss possibility of sustainability. In each area, I make uh, in each area of welfare states, I make I make recommendations. In general, it's you, I think you've got to work with the incentives of people, because the ignoring incentives is is a, is a typical mistake. You've got to be real about human nature. 
and you've got to put money in the hands of individuals, not contract out. The one guy who really understood human nature was Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. I visited Singapore and had the privilege of meeting the deputy prime minister there. Uh, it's not an ideal society for, for people like us who live in a liberal democracy. But he, he is a legend about how Lee Kuan Yew got to understand how to make good policy. There were riots in Singapore at, uh, early on in its existence. And he saw these riots and he saw people grabbing hold of their bicycles, because most people had bicycles in those days in Singapore, and taking them into the elevators, going up, and then often the elevators didn't stop on every floor, so they'd have to take them up some stairs to their apartments to secure their bicycles. And he drew the very obvious conclusion, people look after their own property. They don't care about other people's property, they really care about their own property. And this informed some of his policies. For example, he didn't subsidize projects. There was very little rented property in, in Singapore. What he subsidized and made compulsory savings for was owning property. So you are compelled in Singapore to, uh, to have a, a savings account which you can use to buy property. You then can get a subsidized mortgage rate, a borrowing rate. The ownership rate in Singapore is the highest in the world. It's over 90%. So poor people own property. They have got their own capital. They've got their own stake in society. I walked around those estates, no car, no danger, no burnt cars, absolutely peaceful. You could walk anywhere you liked and have no sense of danger whatsoever. People own their own property. Another thing he did was insist on health savings accounts. It is compulsory to have a health savings account in Singapore. So. You have, you, don't, you have insurance as well, but it's at the start, you have your own health savings account. You build it up compulsory from the moment you get a first employment. And then you can use it, and you can use it to spend at a public hospital, a private hospital. You, you have a choice, because it's your money. And you can get it back later on if you build up enough, and, uh, and uh, you can pass it on to your inheritors as well. So you, you care about it. I'm going to be specific now. I mean, my book is quite diffident, but I'll be un-British now and, um, and be quite specific. Here's, here's what I think should be done in welfare states. I think health savings accounts should be compulsory. I think there should be no welfare benefits almost of any kind unless there is what the Germans called help and hassle. That's to say you should be helped into work and you should be hassled into work. Uh, and things like food stamps, disability benefits, they should all be subject to this, help and hassle. I think there should be private schooling available as a right to everybody in a country. Private schooling should be a, a, a kind of, I don't believe in the word for human rights, but it should be a legal right. As, and that is part of what inspired what they call free schools in Sweden. The idea that you should not be obliged to go to a government school. You should be obliged to go to a school by all means, but it should not have to be a government school. You should have the choice. That was considered part, part of the reason why they, Sweden moved toward having the biggest amount of what you call charter schools. I think that in uh, care for the elderly and care for children, we should minimize the subsidy of what I would provocatively call stranger care. The moment, in many countries, you will get extra money as long as somebody who's not related to the person concerned looks after the child or the elderly person. Now, this is damaging, it breaks up families. And in Spain and elsewhere, 
they have found policies which will minimize this effect, then you should give up on public housing. Public housing hasn't worked across the world. And indeed, if you look at it logically, it, it doesn't make sense that it should work. It is a kind of a logical thing. I, I give a description of that in the book. But instead, you should open up planning so you can make houses cheaper because you make them more abundant. And you should, if anything, subsidize home ownership. And then one of the key things, you should have a constitutional limit on public debt as a percentage of, of uh, GDP. Because that provides a constraint. That stops government going crazy. And if you can embed that in, if you can argue for it and believe in it, and a country accepts it, you will limit. And that's happening in different countries. It's happened in Poland, where they've got a 60% limit. The budget deficit has a legal constitutional limit in Singapore of, of zero. There must be no budget deficit, or else you must report to the president and apologize and tell them how, how you're going to put it right. There should also be, as we started with the problem of democracy, we need to improve the nature of our democracy. Our democracy is really based on the 17th century model and is not appropriate for the modern world. And the country which has the best record on welfare is the country which has a completely different system of democracy, namely Switzerland. Their direct democracy brings about a better result. There are even those cantons in Switzerland where there is a, a requirement that any big spending plan must be approved in a referendum. They, those cantons have the lowest spending. People don't trust the people, but the people, when given direct power over decisions, are actually more responsible than politicians trying to win votes. In general, money should go to individuals and not to contractors. Now, one of the subjects is, are we going to run out of money for the welfare states? And I've seen around the world different countries get into worse and worse debt, greater and greater problems. It's happened in Germany. It's happened in the Netherlands. It happened to some extent in Britain. And what happens is they, they get, they, the problem gets worse and worse and worse, and everybody thinks this is getting crazy. And finally, they say, OK, we must do something about it, because we're debt, and the taxes are getting so high, and the, and the corruption and dysfunctionality are so bad, we are finally going to do something about it. But then five or 10 years pass, and someone, a politician, comes out with a new idea. Let's spend money on this. And people say, yeah, that's right. We should do that. And so. It's like bumping up against the ceiling of how much you can afford in ineffective and dysfunctional welfare states. You keep on bang, and then you go down a bit and you bang it again. Or it's like somebody going out into the, into the sea, and they, get, they can't swim, but they get deeper out, and it's quite nice. They get deeper out and deeper out, and then they're getting sort of up to their neck, and they're thinking, well, maybe this is too much. I'll just go on a bit further. They get up to their nose, and they still be, OK, I'll go back. But this is easy to misjudge. This is a dangerous way to do things. That's why I think there should be a limit on, on debt to GDP. It's, it's got to be stop bumping against the ceiling. After all, Greece went through the ceiling, and, and, and they're now in terrible straits and people in terrible poverty. And just going back to, to, to Rome, and this is where I'm finishing. Rome, in ancient Rome, the corn dole initially was subsidized. Then Clodius made it, made it free. And then more and more people became entitled to it, including high-up officials. It became corrupt. The majority of the, of the citizens of Rome became entitled to what was effectively food stamps. The majority. It was impossible to reform it because everybody had a vested interest in it. And guess how it was eventually cut back? It was cut back by Julius Caesar, a dictator. Only a dictator had the power to roll back this, this thing. 
And this emphasizes to us, or should emphasize to us, just how important it is to, for a democracy to get real about it, to persuade people that change must happen, uh, to adapt some of the, the words written originally by Charles Murray, meaningful reform will not take place when stingy people win. It will take place when generous people combine realism with their idealism. Thank you. Thank you very much. And once again, anybody's interested in his book, uh, The Welfare of Nations, uh, it'll be on sale outside there uh, afterwards. And I'm sure he can even be persuaded to maybe sign your copy. Uh, so we'll, you can have a chance to delve into this. It's full of facts and figures and stories and information on country after country. So I think you'll find it uh, fascinating. Uh, we're going to have some commentary on it, uh, some people who have a little bit of a different view, and uh, I, I think uh, we'll have some differing insights on some of the ideas that, uh, that James has put forward. Uh, the first of those uh, actually have to welcome back, uh, so to speak, Will Wilkinson, uh, who's actually was here at Cato, where he was, uh, he was a research fellow and uh, did some terrific work for us. Um, I've cited him many times, particularly some of his work on happiness and some of his... Uh, work that he's done on some of those issues. Uh, now he's uh, with the Niskanen Center, where he's the Vice President for Policy, and is helping to develop some of their, uh, their broader ideas on how uh, neoliberalism is, or neo-neoliberalism is it now, or neo-neo-neoliberalism, uh, something like that. Uh, at any rate, some, somewhere in there uh, would work in, in terms of the welfare state. Uh, he's also a columnist for Vox, uh, which may be the first that we've had here at Cato. Uh, uh, at any rate, we're thrilled to have him here, and uh, so I'm going to turn it over to, to Will. Thanks, Mark. Thank um, thanks for having me. Uh, it is uh, a real pleasure and honor uh, to be back here at the Cato Institute, uh, where I was for about a half decade in the aughts. Uh, it always uh, you know, feels like home to me. Uh, so it's a real pleasure. Um, James Bartholomew's book, The Welfare of Nations, uh, was a genuine pleasure to read. It is a richly detailed uh, comparative analysis of the ins and outs of social policy in a handful of advanced countries. And it, and it, and it really is a... Uh, you know, a compendium of information. I learned a, a, an immense amount about the uh, actual uh, structure of different government systems in a number of countries uh, that I didn't know about it. So it's an incredibly uh, useful resource of information about how different welfare states work. And it's written with a, a, an incredibly engaging, charming, you know, first-person, man-in-the-streets journalistic flair. Um, so I, uh, uh, for those of you who haven't looked at it, I uh, recommend that you do. It's a, it's a real, uh, for such a wonky book, it is a very readable book. Um, but it did defy my expectations. Uh, when I uh, you know, received the book, I was actually expecting something else. I was expecting uh, more, of a, uh, 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 more of a focused critique of the welfare state uh, than I found myself reading. Its scope was a lot broader than I had expected. Um, uh, so when I think of the welfare state, uh, you know, 
when it comes up as a topic, I tend to think of, you know, there's a kind of core set of programs that are welfare programs, and those are kind of like the, the you know, public assistance, anti-poverty programs like TANF and SNAP, and then and maybe old aid pensions like Social Security, and you know, you're kind of getting at, when you get to like government health care, it's, you know, I guess part of the welfare, you know, like, but there's a kind of core uh, set of welfare state institutions that are mostly about social insurance and transfers. Um, this book covers a huge amount of territory. All of those things that I mentioned, those sort of core welfare state programs uh, are covered in detail. Um, but we also get chapters on the minimum wage, on education systems, on uh, family formation, on the very broad effects that the welfare programs are uh, alleged to have on kind of moral character and behavior, occupational licensing, which is the general matter of public sector employment, and we even get a critique of the very idea of representative democracy. Um, so to be honest, I was unable to really um, draw out of the book the criterion that was used to include or exclude uh, topics. Um, it was so broad, I wondered why we didn't have chapters on monetary policy or just sort of regulatory policy generally or tax policy. Uh, these are all things that strongly affect the welfare and well-being of citizens. Um, so it was just a different book than I was expecting and a lot broader, but then I couldn't understand exactly uh, uh, the criterion that was used to establish its scope. Um, for Bartholomew, the welfare state, uh, and I think it's completely uh, right to think of it this way, is a, is a comprehensive regime type. Um, and he presents it as a kind of middle ground between uh, a more sort of le like laissez-faire classical liberalism and uh, something like socialism. And, and, and it is that uh, to some extent. Um, but the main question of the book to me was never precisely clear. Um, Bartholomew's overarching rhetoric, which is very, very hostile to the welfare state, um, suggests that the question is sort of like whether we ought to have a welfare state um, or whether we ought to like move to something else. Um, yet the welfare state is never compared to anything else. Um, one definitely gets a sense of longing for an earlier notional form of small government laissez-faire, but that alternative is never presented in a way that af would afford a clear data-driven comparison with modern welfare states. And the reason for that is all of the advanced countries in the world have converged on one type of welfare statism or another. Um, so there's no, you know, there are, aren't any countries available that, uh, that represent the kind of uh, small government um, laissez-faire capitalist um, regime type that it seems is in the back of Bartholomew's mind throughout the book. Um, and if you want to take the earlier versions of that kind of system, like in the late 19th or early 20th century, um, the gains in every indicator of human welfare and well-being have been so massive that there's not even an argument to make. The welfare state, as it exists, is a giant improvement over whatever system existed in the past. Um, so 
the book doesn't really ask whether we ought to have a welfare state, even though it seems like it wants to ask whether we want to have a welfare state. It ends up being mainly concerned with the question of what kind of welfare state uh, should we have, which is the question we ought to be asking. Uh, it's a, a profoundly important question. Um, and a lot is at stake in trying to figure out how to make uh, contemporary welfare states as functional and, and effective um, as they can be. Um, yet the question of what kind of welfare state we should have is asked in a kind of uh, enveloping frame of hostility, uh, um, which I found a little puzzling, um, because that seems, again, seems to assume that there's some alternative system we know to work better. Um, in the end, Bartholomew endorses the welfare state, a very minimal one, but conceding that that's likely to be politically infeasible in democracies, settles on a set of recommendations for making welfare states better. And all of these recommendations, I've got quibbles with lots of individual recommendations, but on the whole, they're very, very, very good and very, very helpful. Um, but I worry that those who are most sincerely interested in making the welfare state better aren't likely to take advice from a book that seems very hostile to the very idea of the welfare state. Uh, this book would have felt a little more coherent and powerful to me. Its recommendations would have come across with more force if it had acknowledged that modern welfare states are just incredibly successful. They absolutely do deliver the goods that they promise, welfare. People have never been better off than they are today in modern welfare states. People live longer, they're better educated, they're wealthier, they're healthier. Welfare or well-being is exceedingly high in welfare states. It's never been higher than at any point in the entire history of humankind. Every indicator of human well-being has improved markedly over the last uh, century uh, in no small part due to the welfare state. And among welfare states, indicators of human well-being are often the highest while welfare states are the biggest. So Bartholomew relentlessly attacks pathologies of the welfare state. They cause unemployment, they break down families, they break down society's moral fabric. Uh, he even argues to me very unpersuasively that welfare states cause crime and has to come up with a, a special theory for why crime has been going down precipitously over the last couple decades, uh, um, despite the fact that welfare states aren't shrinking. Um, but in social science and public policy, you've always got to ask uh, about any criticism compared to what? What are we comparing whatever these pathologies are supposed to be to? Um, and I never saw a comparison against anything. Um, so I have a lot of small problems with many specific arguments to the effect that welfare states are harmful, but my big problem, the overarching 60,000 foot problem is that uh, Bartholomew never really confronts the macro level edit, uh, evidence that welfare states are just simply Tremendous. So, like, here's the OECD ranking of public spending as a percentage of GDP, which uh, you can use as a rough measure of the scope of a country's welfare state. Um, and, you know, like, France comes in first, and France is pretty middling in terms of a lot of indicators. But then you've got Finland. It's got the second biggest welfare state in the world. Finland is the ninth freest country in the world, according to the Cato Institute Human Freedom Index. Um, it's the fifth happiest country in the world, according to the World Happiness Report, um, and has the best education system in the world, 
as measured by student test scores. That sounds like it's delivering welfare. Sounds like it's very successful. Um, and you go down this list, a lot of these countries that are in the you know, biggest spending welfare states, Denmark, Germany, Norway, uh, Sweden, they do tremendously well on all the you know, objective indicators of human welfare. They even do really well on the Cato Institute's Human Freedom Index. So this isn't coming at the cost of freedom as the Cato Institute measures it. That's important to acknowledge. <clears throat> so if welfare states have such bad effects, why don't those effects show up in these indicators? Um, and this points, this question points to what I thought was the biggest analytical deficiency of the book. Uh, Bartholomew Marshall's uh, an incredible amount of evidence uh, to support his contention that welfare states have bad effects, but he never considers whether welfare states also have positive effects. They obviously do. And the evidence suggests that the positive effects tend to swamp the negative ones. There's a couple other things in the book that I think would have helped um, um, clarify some of the issues. I like to distinguish cleanly between uh, what I call the regulatory state and the welfare state um, uh, because they are kind of independent variables. The degree to which an economy is regulated and controlled by the state um, uh, doesn't determine the size of public spending or the uh, amount of resources that go into redistributive welfare programs. Um, and the reason that um, many of the big welfare states, um, like, like Denmark, um, and Sweden and Finland do so well on Cato's Freedom Index is because they're very, very, very sort of laissez-faire economies. Um, and that's how they generate the dynamism and growth necessary to finance these um, big redistributive programs. Um, so, and I think you get, gain a lot of clarity by just pulling those things apart and talking about uh, the how regulated the economy is, how much economic freedom there is as something that is a separate issue from the welfare state. And, and they will run together in this book in a way that, um, that I think confuses the issue um, a little bit. Um, that said, I want to just repeat that it's an incredibly rich source of information um, and that the actual positive practical recommendations that Bartholomew offers are on the whole um, excellent, and I hope people pay attention to them. But again, my worry is that they won't because of the framing in which the recommendations are put, which is uh, you know, just an overarching hostility to the welfare state as such. Thanks. Thank you very much, and appreciate that, Will. Um, my last comment here uh, is going to be from Sven Larsen, uh, who is an economist who specializes in macroeconomics and the welfare state. Uh, he's written a lot, uh, particularly about uh, this, the Scandinavian model, if you will, of the welfare state. Uh, has a great deal to say about that. I particularly uh, want to note his book, Industrial Poverty, which I think does a terrific job of debunking a lot of the myths around the, the welfare states. It, it is a very good book, and I don't say that just because I wrote the foreword to it. Uh, uh, although that helped <laughs> on that. 
Uh, he, I primarily know Sven because uh, he constantly sends me emails saying, you've gone squishy, uh, you know, you're getting wet, uh, that, that sort of thing. So, uh, so I, I, I think uh, we'll get something a little bit hardcore here. Uh, at any rate, uh, Sven, I'll turn it over to you for your thoughts on, uh, on uh, James's book. Thank you, Mike. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to, to, um, to be here. Um, I guess I'll have to start out with saying I disagree with both Will and with James here. Um, uh, the welfare state can be rolled back, and it should be rolled back for a host of reasons. But uh, I want to say a few words about James's book uh, that I, um, I too, was, think is a compelling book. It's a great piece of, of research, um, uh, especially because... Um, a good part of the book is spent on taking the welfare state down to the street level. As, as a scholar, as someone who, who does uh, academic and public policy research, um, uh, I find it hard sometimes to explain to uh, legislators and also to the general public exactly how the welfare state corrupts a culture and corrupts a society. Having grown up in Sweden, I have a bit of an advantage there, so, so I can always draw on that. Um, but I, if you really want to know how the welfare state gets under the skin of people, if I put it that way, then James's book is, is a fantastic contribution. Uh, I also like the fact that he, he's so um, um, methodically explores the welfare state's effects in different countries. Uh, the, the chapter on healthcare is is absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I myself, I obviously personal experience of, of living in a country with a socialized healthcare system, actually two countries, because first I paid the world's highest taxes in Sweden, and then I moved to Denmark to go to graduate school, and I paid the world's second highest taxes and got the welfare states uh, that, that come with that money. Um, uh, I um, had a personal opportunity to, to see the difference between um, a healthcare system that does not treat people until they get very, very ill, which is a socialized healthcare system, and the free market leaning system we have here in America, where you actually can get healthcare a lot sooner than when your um, life is in danger. So, so um, but that aside, um, I think the issue of the welfare state that James brings up and, and Will comments extensively on is, um, is it so entrenched? Is it so um, uh, solidly built into our society that we just can't get rid of it? Um, and I would say, um, to some degree, yes, it is. The reason for that is, and, and this is, I have an issue here with, with James's book that I'm going to get to, but... The reason why it has become so entrenched is that the modern welfare state, the, the, the ones that we see around the world and James explores, is built on the principle of egalitarianism. The, 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 the modus operandi of a welfare state today is not to do away with poverty. It is not to uh, um, even alleviate poverty, uh, if you want to be a little hard. It is to redistribute income and other economic resources. And the redistribution part is precisely why the welfare state is so um, has set such deep roots in our societies, in both here in America and in Europe. Uh, 
Because when people start getting things for free and have no incentive to move up toward uh, full self-sufficiency, they will stay there. And um, as the population that receives entitlements from the welfare state grows, such as the example that, that James took from Rome, then, of course, you're going to see uh, more and more popular support for the welfare state. The Swedish economist Gunnar Myrdal actually foresaw this in 1958 when he gave his store lectures at, at Yale. He said that the reason why the welfare state was so successful in Sweden was that it, it worked well with the parliamentary system, a unicameral system where uh, there are no... Um, safeguards for minority opinions where the majority has absolute power can very easily roll out a welfare state. And that's what happened in Sweden from the late 1930s to about 1958. They they went from no welfare state to to the largest welfare state in the world. Um, And I think uh, I am willing to concede the point that yes, the welfare state gets expands rapidly, sets deep roots, and it's difficult to get rid of. But it is not impossible if you point to the actual um, philosophical and economic problems and and address those. Um, When it comes to the philosophical side, I would say you don't need to do uh, all the reforms that um, uh, James points to. All you need is a constitutional amendment here in the United States that bans the use of tax money for, for economic redistribution purposes. That would be the end of the welfare state. Um, when it comes to the economic side, um, I fundamentally disagree with Will. He, he gives a lot of accounts of how the welfare state is doing well. Uh, if you look at um, all macroeconomic indicators that matter, uh, GDP growth, personal income, Um, uh, self-sufficiency, if you will. Uh, The welfare states are doing absolutely poorly from from a a sound economic viewpoint. Uh, The European economy has barely uh, exceeded 1% uh, GDP growth in almost 10 years now. Um, The uh, U.S. economy uh, has had a very hard time growing faster than 3% for the past 16, 17 years. in fact, if you stretch the, the uh, uh, timeline li- back further, um, the growth spurt under Bill Clinton's presidency was an anomaly, and we've seen a decline in growth here in the U.S., which correlates perfectly with the expansion of the welfare state. Um, just as one measure of the growth of the welfare state, if we look at how uh, important personal current transfers are to our personal income. In other words, how large a share of the money that people spend every month do they get from government? Uh, In 1965, it was 6% on average for for, uh, the the American household. In 1975, 10 years after the the launch of the war on poverty, it was 12%. Today, it's uh, over 17%. Um, So... If you correlate that with GDP growth and with growth in personal income, you see that the more people depend on government, the more uh, we will also drift into a a state of macroeconomic stagnation. Um, Now, this is is part of of, of the... We can use all these, forgive the expression, somewhat fluffy uh, measurements of human happiness... Uh, I, I, I happen to have a family from Finland. I can assure you they are, yes, they are very happy. You know what they do for happiness? 
they go out in the winter and they saw a, a circle in, in the ice on the on the lake, and then they put a, a, a an outboard um, uh, engine from a, from a boat there, and they turn that one around and around and around and sit there and have a lot of fun and drink vodka. <laughs> that, that's that, that's how you that's how you have fun in Finland. So it's very easy to have fun in that country. It's very easy to be happy. Um, but if you look at other uh, measurements, other indicators, people can't get ahead. You can't build a life in these countries. You can't. It's very hard to. It's easy to start a business. Uh, I guess that would be the laissez-faire part of a country that takes half of your income away from you. Uh, but it's very hard to maintain them, to build prosperous countries. If you look at, for example, the, the stock market industrial index in those countries that, that Will mentioned, they all consist of a few large companies that have been around for, for almost ever. You don't have companies like Google, Apple, Yahoo, um, other uh, modern high-tech companies that, that get in on... Uh, <laughs> I don't even think IKEA is on the stock market. I think it's owned by a private... Nokia. <laughs> oh, Nokia. Um, so, but, but my point here is that uh, the, we, we should not be um, uh, seduced into going into these uh, more intangible measurements when we talk about the welfare state. What, what matters at the end of the day is, will your children have a better life than you? And that, that comes down to, will they be able to buy a house? Will they be able to support themselves? Will they be able to raise their kids without depending on government? Um, uh, will they be able to save for their own retirement? And I wrote an ebook called Robbing the Millennials, where I went through this and I explained to, to, to my children and, and their generation why the, the welfare state that we are consuming is robbing them of their future. And if you look at these hard macroeconomic numbers and, and measurements, then the welfare state is a big, fat uh, um, cost to us. And it, in fact, I am increasingly worried that that is what is going to be the demise of Western civilization one day. Um, so I, I, uh, I do believe that we can end the welfare state. I need, I, not only can we, but we have to. And I think the, the knowledge that James has accumulated and reports in this book is a big step toward educating people about why we need to do that. So um, uh, uh, one more thing, um, one point I, I promised where I disagree with, with James. He says that the war on poverty was a failure. I'm going to say it was a success, but I think I'll leave you with that cliffhanger for now. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right, we're going to turn to you guys for some questions in a minute. But if you, James, if you'd like to take like just two or three minutes, if you have a couple of quick responses you'd like to, to make before we move on to the uh, the fun portion out here, we'll get folks involved. Well, I, I I mean I really like the first part of both their speeches, um, where they did the compliments. Uh, <laughs> That was great. Um, and it's very flattering to have even people having telling you what rubbish your book is. It means they care. You know, it's, it's really, I'm very honored. Um, but uh, as to this, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Sven says, but I obviously don't agree with some of what Will said, apart from the compliments. Um, the, <laughs> the, the thing, I mean, yes, it doesn't make the argument that there's a counterfactual. It doesn't say, 
uh, here's this country which doesn't have a welfare state, it's done much better, people are much happier, because there aren't, I can't do that. I mean, I cannot get hold of a country that doesn't have a welfare state, because they all do. The closest I've been able to get to it is in my previous book where I look at how um, Britain has changed and how systems were existing and growing uh, for example, in 1856, they did a government survey before there was any government education and found that 95% of children were, got about six years of education between the ages, ages of about uh, eight and, uh, no, six and 14 or something like that. So they found that there was already, as the words of the specialist in this area says, they jumped on a galloping horse. And the ability of uh, society to provide solutions in mutual help, in family help, in charity, is gigantic. And that was demonstrated, if you want to read it, in my previous book, The Welfare State We're In. But I can't do that for every country. That is beyond even my foolishness to try and do that. So, uh, but I, you can compare with places like Hong Kong and, and, to a lesser extent, Singapore. Hong Kong kept a very small welfare state and grew like mad. The prosperity of its citizens grew astronomically. It is now richer per capita than Britain. Whereas when I went there first in, 19, in 1980, it was a, called a barren rock. It had a, a uh, capitalist free market system that improved the conditions of those people in Hong Kong astronomically. And uh, if you want to see a demonstration of the power of free market and allowing people to get on with it, it's there. If you want to see the power of mutual help, uh, then look back to the history of, of Britain and perhaps to, to some extent America as well, and also the church. There are all sorts of ways in which people found a way to look after themselves without compromising the, the growth, without creating low taxes. So, I mean, I, I, I didn't make a counterfactual, but there are reasons why I didn't make a counterfactual. All right, I'm going to go out now to you guys and let you uh, weigh in a little bit on this. So we're going to take a couple of questions and uh, you can address them to specific people. You can throw them open and I may expand on them and we'll see where we go from there. So right there in the front. My name is Stephen Shore. I felt there were um, interesting new ideas, but I felt there was not enough emphasis on the paradox of liberty. So when you have a welfare state, and whether one should have it or not is uh, largely based on one's ethos of what is a city on a hill, but you have people who have chosen by going to the polls to become or remain stakeholders in a welfare state. Now, there may be... Um, uh, philosopher kings who made capable of designing and administering an alternative, but essentially to do this is to abandon democracy. So don't people, individual voters, who are stakeholders in welfare states, have, have the liberty and ought to have the liberty to continue to be its stakeholders? Uh, anybody want to? Oh, well, we, yes, obviously. People have the right to shoot themselves and, uh, and do terrible things to themselves. I mean, absolutely. I, I believe in democracy, and if people want to ruin their lives and those of their compatriots, then that's fine. But, you know, I, we, yeah, the purpose of advocacy is to try and persuade people not to, not to go so, you know, to make reforms which will make their lives better and avoid uh, reforms which will make things worse. Uh, I mean, that, but of course, ultimately, they have a decision. But what I would say is the form of democracy does demonstrate. The, you know, the, the best welfare state in a democratic country is probably that of Switzerland, and that is the one that is most democratic. I don't want to give up democracy, but I think democracy of a better sort 
doesn't end up with people who do grandiose plans, not what they were elected to do, and, and people are more irresponsible voting for a representative than they are on an individual issue. We in Britain are particularly aware of this after leaving the European Union. I would also note that one of the things that we do in this country is we put limits on democracy because there's a limit to how far you can democratically impose your will on, on other people. I mean, they'll hold the whole Bill of Rights thing and, and all of that, and limits on the power of government. So to what degree are you not just voting yourself into a welfare state, but are you coercing other people to be part of that welfare state and to support you in that? I mean, there are limits to how far we're willing to go in, in democracy in order to force other people to, to contribute in what, to the degree that we want to be part, part of something. Uh, anybody else? I just, shall I just add that there's a chapter on democracy which gives you 12 things that are wrong with democracy. <laughs> I still defend democracy, but it's, I liken it to a drunk husband. You know, you, you, uh, he's drunk, he falls over, he makes mistakes, but you still love him, and that's democracy. Yeah, sure. Uh, just a quick comment. I, uh, it's a very good, uh, very interesting question. Um, uh, I think one of the reasons why the American welfare state has not yet added the crown jewel, so to speak, of, of egalitarianism, namely a single-payer healthcare system, is precisely because, because of the, the balances, the checks and balances in, in uh, our form of government here. Um, I, I, I'm not a political scientist, so I can't speak to the extent that that has made a difference, but I, I do think it plays a, a role in it. Yeah, in his striped shirt in the back. By the way, if people would just make uh, uh, identify themselves and any organization they're with as part of this, and of course, keep it to a question, not a speech. <coughs> my, uh, my, my name is Demetria. I'm not with any organization. Thank you very much for the presentation. I just have a few questions. My first question is about uh, for the limit on government debt as a percentage of GDP. Do you have a concrete number that you would suggest for the UK and the US? Would it be any way contingent on what the interest rates are in the world? The other question is, I lived in Switzerland for a while, so I have some experience with this direct democracy thing. So do you think it's practical in a country like the United States or the UK? And does technology help? For example, in Utah recently, they had a poll that asked, how would you prefer to spend all the money that we have available to us? And they kept it online for like six months, and then people voted, et cetera. And, and the last question I have was, about, I don't know if this may be outside of the scope of the book, was about the global, global welfare state, things like UNICEF, UNDP, where you come down on those. Thank you. James? Um, well, um, the government debt limit, I, I mean, I don't have a strong view. I just tell you that in Poland they decided on 60%, and I think that's a, not an unreasonable limit. Um, you certainly, once you get towards 100, 120, you're in trouble, uh, according to the conventional wisdom. So let's keep it well below that. Uh, and and the, the deputy prime minister in Singapore made this point. I said, you know, people think short term. And he said, uh, maybe, but if you put forward an argument in a democracy and say, we want a democracy that is stable and consistent and does not rob our children, the opposition, whoever they may be, has got to argue against that. You know, you've got to have the courage to put the argument, and then you may, may or may not win it. Um, talk about, um, is, is it practical to have direct democracy in Britain or America? I don't know, but I know that what we've got is not working well, 
And uh, I think it's worth moving towards that direction. And in fact, I think that actually there is a move towards that direction, and certainly in Britain, where we've just had this referendum on leaving the European Union, and we've, that's not the first referendum we've had. And I, I think it's beginning to build up. And there are some politicians in Britain who are beginning to argue for it. There is more local democracy now than there used to be in Britain. And uh, I, I think it's not impossible. And I'm, you know, we, we, just because something may not happen is not a reason for not arguing for it and trying for it. Well, um, I wanted to say something about that direct democracy. The, um, I think one of the just like the inherent difficulties in kind of comparative analysis of systems is that, uh, is that everything is mediated by culture and that complicates everything. I like to talk about Denmark because it's like got a higher level of economic freedom than the United States does or equal level, but as a huge welfare state, it illustrates that these two things, kind of the regulatory aspect and the, and the uh, you know, and the uh, and the welfare state aspect kind of come apart. But when I bring it up, people are like, oh, well, we could never be like Denmark because, like, it's a tiny, uh, homogeneous country. And, and, and I always agree with that. Like, yeah, yeah, of course. Like, what is feasible in one place depends on, um, like, contingent facts about its history, about its cultural composition. Um, you know, Singapore is a city-state uh, run by, uh, um, you know, kind of, I mean, there's a, the ruling class is all like Han Chinese in you know uh, you know in a, in a you know in a place where they're otherwise a minority, uh, and it's got a very distinctive you know technocratic culture. Uh, you know Hong Kong was a you know a, a, a British imperial colony, and that has a and and like what's possible under one set of conditions, it may not be possible in another set of conditions, and it's and it's just not very I, I um, and so. I, I don't think, I, you know, like I think a direct democratic system in the United States uh, would just be, I think it work, does work really, really well in Switzerland. Switzerland's just, you know, aces, you know, like it's great. Um, but like it's going to be more like the referendum system in California, which has caused gigantic fiscal problems there where people, uh, um, you know, majorities keep voting for giant programs that they can't afford. Um, and, and that's because the, in some ways their political culture is not conditioned in the way that it, the Swiss, Swiss political culture is uh, that for some whatever reason constrains that kind of voting themselves bread and circuses. So. Hi, Phil Harvey, uh, DKT Liberty Project. James, I'm sure this is covered in your book, which I look forward to reading, but I wonder if we could get your views on universal basic income as one of the solutions to the welfare problem. Yeah, well, this is a subject which I avoid as often as I can. Um, it's partly because it's, you know, it was espoused by you know, heroes like uh, Milton Friedman, and yet it's also espoused by people on the left. Um, I, I remain skeptical. Uh, I'm, you're removing, you're basically saying anybody can, can survive on an income given by other people. How many people will actually decide not to work? Maybe to be an artist or to do some work that is not known about on the side. And you know, how, how, how high will the taxes have to be to pay for the, the, the universal, the guaranteed income for all those people who decide not to work? Um, I, th I, I just 
wait to see. I mean, I'm not doctrinaire against it. The idea of it is that you should... Everybody's got an income, and, uh, and so nobody starves, but also it's a limited income, so you've got every incentive to earn more beyond that. And so you will keep any extra. But I'm I just sceptical that the maths will add up. And until somebody does it... I've never seen any sum. Anyone do an, an assumptions or guesses about how many people would stop working how high taxes would have to be to pay for those people who stop working. I mean, I haven't even seen a stab at it, let alone an actual practical experiment. So I'm sceptical that it can work. Yes, Ben? Uh, yeah, this is one of the issues where I, I uh, disagree with, or Michael has a much more pragmatic approach than I am. I guess I'm a little bit doctrinaire on this. I, uh, I have not seen a single proposal for universal basic income that makes uh, sense from a, either a macroeconomic or a microeconomic viewpoint. But more, more um, importantly, I think, uh, if the universal basic income is supposed to be some kind of improvement of the welfare state, um, it's, it's a little bit like um, rewriting the, the cocktail menu on the Titanic. Uh, it, it is not going to change anything, much for the reasons that, that James brought up. Uh, in fact, what it, what it probably will do is add uh, just another welfare program. Um, sometimes it is brought up as a bridge between uh, conservatives and, and liberals slash progressives. Um, I think the risk is that as a, as a compromise, it is going to just expand the welfare state. And um, I... Um, if someone can show me uh, a, um, uh, an example of a universal basic income that would actually uh, vastly improve our macroeconomic performance, I will, I will take a serious look at it. But until I do, I, I, I agree with James. It's, it's not something that I... I think, in fact, I think it distracts from the, the uh, fundamental issues, which is that we have a government that consumes too much, redistributes too much, and taxes too much. Yeah, so I went up and right there. Oh, hi. Uh, my name's Julia, Julia Abrahams. Um, I, I, don't, I don't work. Um, <laughs> I don't have an, uh, an affiliation. Okay. Um, but I did want to ask about employers um, because I didn't hear anybody talk about... Um, I'm sorry, this is going to be very naive. Um, if you work for a company, your company pays for your health care and it pays for your child care and it pays for your graduate school and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so if you're in a country where your employer pays for all of those things, your government doesn't have to. On the other hand, the cost of the product that the company makes for, all, for everybody else goes up. Um, and there's some aspect that has to do with the tax money that the company pays into the country's uh, resources and I, I don't really understand the overlap of those things, but it seems as though if the companies all more or less voluntarily pay for these things, then the government doesn't have to. And I wondered if somebody could clarify all that. Sure, Will and then Sven. I like it's actually a really complicated question, and 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 one of the difficulties in comparing different systems is that these kind of different options are often treated as if they're like. There's like some big substantive conceptual difference when whether when it's actually like a little bit more of an accounting difference where uh, if um, if if businesses just buy health plans for people um, 
that's not that different if, than if the state buys health plans for people. It's just being bought by one you know, entity rather than the other, and its particular economic effects just depend on lots of things. So like, you know, if that's part of the cost of doing business, it's going to have effects on how many people you know, businesses can employ, has costs on, effects on their prices. Um, but it also has, um, you know, governments tend to do a better job of negotiating terms with insurance companies. And so like prices are way higher, say in a place like the United States where people get their health insurance through their employers than they are in a lot of countries where it's provided by the government and the government negotiates the prices for treatments with insurers. And, and, and the distinction between it being offered privately or being offered publicly um, isn't as big a difference as sometimes people make. What you just want to look at is what the actual effects that it has in the system and how that affects people's um, uh, well-being. And so sometimes, like, with... It, like, in a system like, like, like... James talked a lot about um, Singapore and their uh, forced savings accounts. Um, in some ways, it's just a matter of accounting. Like, if, if what you're doing... If, if the government policy is we're, we're going to pay for health care by forcing you to put your money into an account that you can't touch for any purpose other than this, um, there is some psychological and legal difference between having an account that you have a formal property right to, but your property right is almost non-existent. You can't do anything with that money. It's been taken from you, and you can't use it for anything other than buying one thing, right? Um, it might, so if what the government did was you put that money in an account that the government owns, but it has your name on it, and you can spend it, it would be the exact same thing. You know, and, and so some of these questions, I feel like there seems like there's more ideologically, people think there's more ideologically at stake than there is, because they think, uh, but, but when it comes to policy, as long as the state's doing it, um, it's, uh, uh, people are being compelled on one dimension or another, and freedom's being constrained in one dimension or another, and uh, there's going to be some economic ramifications one way or another, and the most important thing is just to compare them fairly rather than to make a... There is, there is uh, more of an ability in, with the employer-provided benefits to walk away than you have with the government, which with the single-payer system, that's it. I mean, that, that's your only choice uh, of system, mm -hmm. whereas with an if, employer, if I don't like my employer's insurance company, I could take that into account and go, you know, quit then scan it and come back to work for Cato if you... But it creates a labor market friction, too, where, where, where when the state pays for your health insurance, you, you don't have to worry about whether you're going to have health insurance if you yeah. leave your job. So, like, there's just these there's different, different economic effects of different systems, and how they add up is the hard question. Okay. Uh, just a, a brief... Um, add a couple of comments to that. First of all... Uh, there are different types of welfare state. It is not necessarily the case that just because you, you create a European-style welfare state that you will get all the benefits from government. The Greek system, for example, is heavily dependent on you working. Um, 
uh, where you're, if you lose your job, you're essentially uh, going to live um, in the proverbial gutters of the welfare state. Um, and, and you also have these general income insurance programs that, for example, Scandinavia is well known for. They're entirely tied to you working. If you don't work, you'll, you'll be living on, on um, scraps, essentially, from, from, from the welfare state. The other point I wanted to make is that... Um, uh, I think here in America, we've tried to kind of strike some sort of balance between the free market system and the welfare state. Um, it looks good on surface, but there are so many regulations. I think Will made a very good point of separating the welfare state from the regulatory state. Um, we've chosen more of a, a regulatory uh, way forward. And now, for example, there are states that are adding a mandate for uh, fa paid family leave and other things. Um, it is much better to roll back and try to decouple employment from you building a benefits package for yourself. Uh, I, I think that that is a much more sustainable uh, way forward. But I think your question is, is uh, something that we all need to take into account when we work on the actual reforms that we want to see. Um, and, and, and that is that is one of the hardest things about rolling back the welfare state. Nevertheless, we need to get it done. All right, I'm going to close it off here because we're at lunchtime. Uh, folks uh, want to stick around. You can certainly ask questions individually of folks. Uh, James will be uh, able to be talked into signing his book. You can buy copies out there. Once again, for everybody, it's The Welfare of Nations. I do recommend it. Talk about a plethora of knowledge. I mean, I mean, wow. Uh, I've studied this issue for years, and I've learned something on almost every page. So it's a terrific book. Uh, everybody, we are having lunch upstairs in the George Yeager Conference Center. Uh, on the way up, if you go find the yellow wall, you can find restrooms uh, if anybody wants to. Other than that, I'm just going to turn it over and uh, thank everyone for coming once again. Uh, enjoy your lunch. Thank you. Thank you.